Have you ever thought it might be more important what kind of people we are than who won the election? Or maybe we could choose a different question when making our next decision. If we just said, let's do the next right thing. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Path Theological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Trying to form a podcast and a legacy of podcasts or uh, what we call a back catalog of podcasts that are resources for pastors and lay folks who are interested in the intersection of life, faith, and theological reflection. Today's podcast is a little bit different. Normally, um, it's an interview. Uh, today, I have a a talk given by Adam Clark at a one-day conference called Third Rail. And the third rail is a metaphor for that conducting uh, piece that runs between two tracks that energizes uh, rail tracks. And and so in this particular talk on um, uh, racism, uh, classism, and um, whiteness, um, black theologian Adam Clark, whom I've had on the podcast before, uses Martin Luther King Jr. as a metaphor to talk about these particular issues. And then I was privileged to interview him after that talk, and so it's a little longer podcast, but I encourage you to stay with it and uh, see if you can't discover some things. Certainly, um, I know some of my listeners may uh, find some things to disagree with, uh, but uh, what I really hope happens is just thinking through these issues from a different perspective provides an opportunity to think theologically and reflect on the uh, experience we have in our country and um, the uh, uh, possibilities of what to do going forward. And uh, like the initial question, I really do think it's more important what kind of people we are than who won the election. And maybe this talk will help you think about those sorts of things. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, stay tuned at the end. We'll have just a couple of quick uh, notes. Uh, Welcome, everybody. I'm a professor. I like to use a text because I like to make specific points. So I I was trying to think about what's the best aspect of work to share with you. And since, you know, King Day just passed, I wanted to use King, King's legacy as a metaphor um, and even as a historical instance for looking at the issues of race, class, and white privilege. So I'm going to share with you some of the uh, work I've been doing on King and actually some of the, I've had about three or four King Day events that I participated in. I want to share with you some of the uh, reflections I had on this. And I tentatively titled this The Radical King or The Dangerous King. February 1st, 1968, a huge terrestrial rainstorm hit Memphis, Tennessee. Sanitation crews, which were all black at the time, had to rush for cover. Since they weren't allowed in white hotels, they were assigned colored cabins. But the cabins were so small and dilapidated, two of the crew members couldn't fit. Sleeping outside wasn't an option, 
because the storm was too bad. Going to a hotel wasn't an option because Negroes weren't allowed in white hotels. So they climbed back into their garbage truck and slept with the garbage. During the night, the garbage truck malfunctioned, and two men, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were crushed to death. And no one seemed to care that black men were being treated as garbage. Outraged, the sanitation workers called for a strike. But it failed because neither the religious community, the middle class, or the national labor movement supported it. Black men were being treated as garbage, and no one seemed to care. About a month later, James Lawson contacted King to come to Memphis to give attention to the plight of garbage workers. King, against the strong objections of some of his inner circle, pulled away from planning the Poor People's Campaign, which was in disarray at the time, to be in solidarity with the garbage workers. A week later, King was struck down by an assassin's bullet. Now, many of you have probably seen old pictures of black men with these iconic placards over their torso and down to their, you know, over their necks and down to their, over their torsos. And the placards read, read, I am a man. I am a man. But the full meaning of that message is, I am a man, not a piece of garbage. I am a man, not a piece of garbage. Each year, the nation gathers collectively to remember, commemorate, and celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm always puzzled by the range of claimants and admirers of his legacy. When you turn on the TV, and you see political figures such as Donald Trump and Ted Cruz giving King Day speeches, and then you turn the channel and you see Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, and Clinton giving King Day speeches, are they talking about the same king? How is it that conservative religious figures such as Tony Perkins or Franklin Graham or Ralph Reed identify their ministries with King's legacy, but so do progressive ministers such as Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and William Barber. Can the Tea Party and Black Lives Matter both claim King and be right? That's kind of rhetorical. We kind of know what's going on. But the point being, is what image of King is being constructed that makes everyone, even people who oppose the policies he supported, so comfortable with championing King? The popular image of King that's generated 
in most King Day celebrations through educational institutions and the media is deeply sanitized to make him more palatable to corporate interests and a risk-averse public. And the risk-averse especially becomes a race. Cornel West refers to this as the Santa Clausification of King. An image of King as a wise man with toys in a bag, smile on his face, distributing cookies to black and white children. This tames the King legacy, robbing it of his bite and prophetic fire. If all King did was bring white and black children together to march hand in hand, why was he so despised during his life? If all King did was give a speech about a dream, how did that warrant death threats? Since when did espousing Christian love and speaking about racial tolerance get you labeled the most dangerous Negro in America by the FBI? The FBI doesn't place a bug in your bed, doesn't place listening devices in your phone, doesn't send letters to your wife and to yourself telling you to commit suicide or I'm going to publicly humiliate you. Dreaming alone doesn't provoke that type of response from the government. The radicalism of King has disappeared from our public consciousness. When you listen to people speak about King, you almost think they're talking about a guy who died from natural causes, not someone who was politically assassinated. During the course of his public life, which was 12 years, very short, King was stabbed once in the chest, his home was bombed three times, the mail, his mail, brought a daily flow of death threats and obscenities. And he was often considered an extremist, a rabble-rouser, and a troublemaker. Even the president of his beloved Morehouse University didn't honor him till way later because they said he's a, he gets arrested too much, right? He's not really a good role model because he's always in jail. But in spite of all this, King worked 20 hours a day and made about 450 speeches a year. That's more than one speech a day. It's a lot. 365 days, 450 speeches a year. He was killed at the age of 39. That's really young. That's younger than Jay-Z. Younger than Nas. Even Barack Obama wasn't even a state senator at 39. Right, he started at 26. Right? We, you know, Soldier Boy is 26. Chris Brown is 27. <laughs> right? So you can see like the kind of disparity between what people think the maturity levels <laughs> between kind of contemporary, not everybody, of course, but among people who are celebrities, that King was actually in Montgomery leading the bus boycott at 26 years old. But he paid a heavy cost because he burned the candle on both ends for 12 years. He suffered from depression and migraines. So much so that during his autopsy, when they cut him open, 
He died at 39, but his insides were 60 years old. That's tough. And it kind of reminds me of a lot of people who are in ministry and activism today. Right? They burn the candle on both ends. They deal with depression. And King, to his credit, I mean, um, and one example that people don't, don't, don't really um, think about enough about King is that how he was able to still fight for the right despite his personal turmoil. Right? Like, he could have just laid back. He actually wanted to just be a college professor and go back. He wanted to leave the movement. He said, this is too short. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> said, they came to me and asked me, and I accepted, and now I'm caught up in the sweep of events. But he thought many times privately, like, I could be teaching at some college somewhere and just taking care of my family and living a nice, comfortable life. I don't have to have all these, these people um, hating me. And it just gave, like, a treat. There was tremendous personal cost in King. But there was an attempt to reduce King. When you ask most people, or when I ask my class about what is King's significance, most people say civil rights for blacks or getting blacks the right to vote. Now, that's important. But that doesn't define his entire significance. King was about restructuring American democracy and reconstituting the American character, especially around race. And generally, you need the office of the presidency to do that, to make far and deep-reaching changes. For example, when you think of George Washington, you have the Bill of Rights. When you think of Thomas Jefferson, you have the Declaration of Independence. Uh, We have Lincoln, you talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, Roosevelt... Um, New Deal, um, Obama, healthcare, although that's kind of in jeopardy now. (laughs) But as a citizen, King was able to transform America as a citizen. He's the only non-president with a national holiday. There are more streets named after King than any other American citizen in America. 688. And the guiding principle of King's movement for equal souls for equal votes, right? If we're equally spiritual equality should equal social equality. That was a debate during slavery about not Christianizing African people, right? Like if you actually Christianize them, you say they're equally spiritually, everybody's children of God, then the social structures should reflect that. But what's happened is that that's what racism does. It, it actually... It's, it's spiritually violent, not just socially violent. It does violence to the very concept of equal souls. So King can be seen as the greatest religious figure of the 20th century because the America he inherited was dramatically different from the America he helped produce. And the most visible... Um, evidence of his impact can probably be seen in the American South. Or is it, um, are there anybody in here who watches um, college football? Anybody here? Show of hands. Okay. National championship game between Clemson and Alabama. Now, imagine the Clemson and Alabama game without black players. 
right? South Carolina, Alabama. Imagine North Carolina basketball without black players. Imagine Kentucky Wildcats without black players. During segregation, blacks couldn't enter into these universities. Right? So the whole thing of March Madness and college sports. No professional sports teams were in the segregated South. No Dallas Cowboys. No Atlanta Falcons. No Atlanta Braves. No Olympics could be in the South. No Super Bowls were, were, were in the South during the segregated South because there's so much stigma around that. Women couldn't serve on juries. There were no female rabbis until the 1970s. The first female Episcopal priest around the same time. There were no women at Harvard and Yale. Bilingual voting started as a, as a, as a initiative in the civil rights movement. The Physical Disabilities Act. Uh, civil rights movement gave momentum to the labor movement, the feminist movement, inspired the ecology movement, the, the, the gay rights movement, which we call LGBT movement. Stonewall happened in 1969, right? So King's influence extended far beyond the black vote to reconstituting American democracy and most dramatically the South. And in this sense, you can kind of see he's, King's movement represents the third rail. Um, during slavery, the conservative position on slavery was we have to honor the law and we have the right to treat our slaves as harshly as we need to. The liberal position of slavery was, well, treat them with kindness. But the abolitionist position was, we need to eliminate slavery, right? That's the third rail, the elimination. During the Montgomery bus boycott movement in 1956, neither the Democrats or the Republicans supported that. It was a third rail. When after the March on Washington, Kennedy didn't really want to pass the Civil Rights Act because he was deeply reluctant to offend his fellow Democratic senators, segregationist senators in the South. But the third rail pushed him to do that. In New York, you have the New York City train system. You have track A, you have track B, and then you have a third rail. And the third rail is the energizing rail. It's the power rail. The train doesn't move if the third rail is not ignited. And the, so the King's movement was a third rail. It ignited things. And that's pretty much what the church is called to do, right? To be the thing that initiates and ignites things. So Cain pointed out there's a dramatic gap between the American ideal and American reality. America claims to be about freedom, justice, and equality, but the reality is far different. And what he tried to do was to help America be true to her own commitments. So when we honor king, we should recognize there are two kings. There's a safe king and there's a dangerous king. 
the king that's projected in popular media and most of our educational political institution is the safe king. It's the domesticated king. King's public career started in 1956 and ended when he was assassinated in 1968. The public memory of King is focused only on the early king. That's the love your enemies king. The king who encouraged Southern blacks to be nonviolent despite white terrorism and brutality. The king who advocated beloved community and wanted people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That's King's emphasis till 1963, but he lived until 1968. And it's that gap between 63 and 68 that most people don't know about. The late king, that's the dangerous king or the radical king, was deeply disappointed in the rate of progress in America. We don't remember later in 1963, after the dream speech, he talks about how his dream turned into a nightmare. In the later part of his legacy, there was a paradigm shift. And we have to retrieve that king from the collective state of amnesia. This is the king who said, America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. That America is on the wrong side of history. He, said, he also said, we need to stop studying the Negro. We need to make some studies on these white suburban folks. Something's wrong about people who try to kill other people just because they want a hamburger. right? Let's study that. That's the pathology, not what's happening in black communities. And then he said, most whites are unconscious racism. They're racist without even knowing that they're racist. That's King in the later part of his career. And the radical King is the most relevant, is the most relevant image of King to explore the contradictions in contemporary American society. It is not courageous in the 21st century to be against whites-only drinking fountains or colored-only drinking fountains. It's not hard in our times to see the moral buffoonery of a Eugene Bull Connor or the ruthlessness of a Jim Clark, because this generation wasn't born where those things were normative. But when King challenged these ideas and practices, they were the norm. They were part of the fabric of the culture. They were the taken for grantedness of the day. The best way we can honor King is not by condemning the segregationist mentalities of the 1950s and the 1960s. It's by using his legacy to combat the injustices that are embedded in our taken-for-grantedness, in our norms, to challenge the dominant assumptions and racial presuppositions of our day. And ironically, Many of those presuppositions are derived from King's dream speech. The dream speech is a watershed moment in the racial understanding for both conservatives and progressives. Yet each group identifies and interprets the moral vision of the speech differently. For conservatives, the ends part of the speech gives the most weight, unlocks the key. At the ends part, he says, 
let's not judge people by the content of their character, or let's judge by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. That's the most important aspect, and that's kind of the tagline. So for conservatives, colorblindness is the dominant ethos of the speech. There should be no race consciousness in law. Any use of race by the government or by corporation is not, corporations, is not an act of balance. It's an act of preference. And this conservative reading of the speech, or some variation of it, is the dominant ethos in America's public consciousness of race. It interprets the civil rights movement as a movement to replace race consciousness with race neutrality. But the content of your character remark and the I have a dream refrain is in the last part of the speech, the most flowery part. Most folks don't remember the first part. The first part, King was in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and he said, a hundred years ago, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which was a beacon of hope to millions of enslaved Africans. The Negro, he says, a hundred years later, the Negro still isn't free. A hundred years. Blacks were crippled by segregation. They live in islands of poverty, and they are chained by discrimination. And in light of this American promise, instead of being swept under the rug, this ought to be a national shame. Then he spoke of the Constitution and the American Declaration of Independence as being promissory notes that were marked insufficient funds. So the Negro, he says, was issued a bad check, right? by these documents, and they came back marked insufficient funds. And that's the framing of the speech that the I have a dream remark should be understood. As a matter of fact, this speech could easily be renamed the Broken Promises speech. Right? Because that's what he is really trying to get at. King conceived of the civil rights struggle as a way of collecting on promises already made and admonishing America to fix the problem it created. So the argument was not for legal uniformity, a one-size-fits-all approach, but for legal equality that took into account race, gender, and class factors in how justice is executed. He never intended to eliminate race or difference. He just didn't want people penalize, or stigmatize for them. So 53 years later, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Jim Crow racism that King struggled against is no longer the dominant form of racism. It is no longer popular to enforce racial inequality by overt means. At least, I used to think so before the election, but now I'm starting to wonder, like, what's going on here? But signs such as no Negroes welcome or whites only are not socially respectable anymore. But there's a new type of racism. And some scholars call this colorblind racism. 
and his practices are much more subtle. Colorblind racism claims not to see race, yet manages to replicate racial hierarchy as effectively as the Jim Crow segregation of old. Colorblind racism allows many whites to safeguard racial interests without sounding racist. Race is spoken of by proxy. For example, George Wallace, the former segregationist governor of Alabama, promised to protect segregation. In one of his inaugural speeches, he famously pledged, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. After it stopped being respectable to protect segregation, he developed a language of resentment and grievance to the government and any type of political activity that enforced equal citizenship, equal citizenship, equal citizenship through the doorway of race. The civil rights movement always came through the doorway of race and then extended to everybody. So what he did was he ridiculed the pointy-headed bureaucrats that force your children to go to school someplace but through busing. He invoked distrust of the national media and said it had a racial agenda. He spread fears about the conspiracy to centralize all power in Washington. Now, that type of language sounds contemporarily chilling, right? That language evolved into big government is bad and taxes are wasted on the undeserving. And I don't like busing in my neighborhood. So no longer did you have to say colored children belong in colored schools. You could just say, I hate busing or states' rights. And everybody knew what you were talking about. So shielded by colorblindness, Whites can express resentment toward people of color, criticize their morality, their values of work ethic, and even when something is done to address the inequality, colorblindness empowers many whites to claim they're victims of reverse racism. Now, not everybody who expresses this language has some type of racial animus. I don't want you to hear me saying that. You can principally believe that taxes are excessive and government is too intrusive, and it has nothing to do with race. My point being is that the modern usage and the widespread popularity, especially in formerly segregated states, was a proxy for race. And America still has a problem. You, know, you see all these kind of incidents where you see people of color and Muslims being beat up and people are yelling, Trump, 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 Trump. Right? He's using it as a proxy for something. Why would you yell his name? Sense that even while he denies that that's not something I would support. So colorblind ideology makes us less effective in trying to address inequality. How can we be a colorblind society where inequality is color-coded? You know, race shades almost every aspect of American life. And if it was fair, you would expect there is an equal distribution of both the misery and benefits of society. Right? Like, if, there was, if color didn't matter, then, you know, there would be equal benefits for people of color and white people, and there would be equal misery. But instead, blacks are overrepresented in those arrested, overrepresented in those who are prosecuted, 
overrepresented in incarceration and people charged with capital crime, and underrepresented in well-paying jobs, in ed educational attainment, in home ownership. Right? So this is part of the challenge of King. Now, most folks were introduced to the concept of, sociali of socialism through the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Did really well, talked about himself as a socialist, but King was socialist when socialism wasn't cool. He referred to himself privately as a democratic socialist. Democratic socialism is not Sovietism, not communism, as the critics often asserted. It is deep democracy. Not just democratizing our political affairs, but democratizing our economic arrangements. In 1966, King confided to his staff, you can't talk about solving the economic problem of the Negro without talking about, a billions, talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending slums without first saying profit must be taken out of having slums. There must be a better distribution of wealth. And maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Now, he never said this publicly because of the kind of red and communist scare, but he would talk about this privately to, to his folks. King grew up in the South and came from a middle-income household. And it wasn't until 1964, when he went to Watts in Chicago, that he started to really see urban poverty. The kind of Southern poverty was a little different, right? Like, it was very racially stratified. You could, you know, my father grew up in a, um, a farm, and he would say, like, we were poor, but we always knew we could eat because we grew our own food, right? Different when you, but, you know, my mother, who uh, was poor and um, grew up in urban poverty, she said, you know, we had food insecurity all the time. We didn't know. You know we might not have dinner this night. Um, so it's, it's, it's a different mindset. So King saw that the problem in Chicago's ghetto was not legal segregation, but economic exploitation. Slum housing, overpriced foods, low-wage jobs, because someone profits from its existence. Right? So someone's benefiting from the fact that people are poor. He referred to this as internal colonization. And the most pow powerful factor that fueled King's opposition to capitalism was from his biblical faith. King's faith taught him to bridge the gulf between abject poverty and excessive wealth. In this sense, he considered capitalism as an insult to his faith. King's ethics are firmly rooted in the tradition of the, the, the radical biblical prophets like Amos and Micah and Isaiah, who together proclaimed that everyone, including the rich and the powerful, were to be governed by ethical principles such as misfat, the foundational egalitarian justice, or I'm going to have trouble with pronouncing this Hebrew word, but sadiquak, um, justice put into action, or hetzet, steadfast love, or emet, truthfulness in public or private life. The political implications of this ethical constellation are reflected by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 16.5. A throne shall be established in headset, steadfast love. And on it shall sit in emet, truthfulness, a ruler who seeks 
misfat egalitarianism and justice, and is swift to do static, put justice into action. So from what we know of King, he was draped with the mantle of these prophetic ethics, which by definition are fundamentally opposed to the capitalist ethic of greed and dog-eat-dog-ism. <laughs> Politically, this translated into King advocating for, he called it, a GI Bill of Rights for the Disadvantage. The GI Bill created like the white middle class because it taught, it, it actually gave the government, actually intervened to help people enter into middle class. But he said, we need to have a GI Bill or something model off that for the disadvantage to enter into American promise. And the government would have to act on that. He also advocated for a guaranteed income. He said, he, 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 he writes, I am now convinced that the simplest approach to the solution of poverty is to abolish it directly by what he referred to as a widely discussed manner, measure, the guaranteed income. So the early king believed that legislation would solve the problem of racial oppression. The radical king used words like redistribution or restructuring to discuss the struggle for justice. On one hand, he, he, he remarked, we are called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside. But according to King, that's only the initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed when they make their journey on life's highway. So he does a remix on the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says that that's an initial act if you just help the person. But we have to transform the entire role so it won't produce beggars. He says, we must do more than fling, flip, fling coins at beggars. We must come to see that the edifice that produces beggars needs restructuring. So the first two phases of King's ministry were based on the themes of love and justice. The final phase, hope, becomes a dominant theme of his ministry. America's history, he remarks, need not be her destiny. Her history is not faded. The contradictions of life are not final. Human beings have the power to create a new history. And for King, the creation of a new society is not a fixed idea, but an organic one. Societies are either growing or dying, right? They're a dynamic flux. So the idea is not to just preserve democracy, it's to grow democracy. On Thursday, April 4th, 1968, King retreated to his room at the Lorraine Hotel. He was not thinking, he was thinking about this sanitation uh, strike, and he was thinking how human beings should not be treated as garbage. And he was working to create a sermon, and the title of this sermon was Why America May Go to Hell. 
why America may go to hell. Now, in this sermon, he drew from uh, the Luke parable about Dives of Lazarus. It is not wealth that puts you in hell. It's ignoring the humanity of the poor. King was assassinated before he could ever deliver that sermon. But if we look at the condition of the poor today, if that's the criteria, we might be able to join King and say, America still might be going to hell. King kept reminding people that the goal of the struggle was not only the right to vote or to sit in front of a bus, but to give birth to a new society based on love and justice. At the beginning of the movement, you know, you, know, you had a 10% of the population that's trying to tra transform the entire country by ending segregation. They had no army, no newspaper, no TV network. And actually, it wasn't even all the 10% of minority. It was like a minority within a minority that's trying to do this. And the minority of the minority, a lot of them were out each other's throats. So the point being is that you don't need majorities to make social change, right? The, the few always pay the price for the many. So as we move from a yes, we can era into a I alone can fix the problem era, I think the King legacy becomes more and more relevant. In his last book, King raises the question, where do we go from here? The world was growing, this is 1968, 768. He says the world is growing more and more interdependent. He talks about stuff like, hey, we could travel from New York to London. Um, the atom bomb can destroy people, he says, in, in countries that we don't know about. And he talks about the interdependence, interdependence of things. And he also talks about the strong reactionary forces that keep people divided. And his message in this book was one thing. We need each other. King saw the hidden wholeness beneath the brokenness and division of humanity. He didn't, see as a, he didn't see the choice as being between black or white, Republican or Democrat, straight or gay. He said the choice is between chaos or community. We can live together as brothers and sisters, or we perish together as fools. To follow the path of genuine community, the king believes we had to go or undergo a radical revolution of values, where we transform from a thing-centered society to a person-centered society. So if America goes to hell, it's her choice. And it's quite possible. I mean, it's possible that America is so deeply wedded to a death instinct that she's locked into patterns of division and self-destruction where human beings will be permanently treated like garbage. But King calls us to be more morally courageous. He reminds us that while elections are important, what's more important is the kind of person and society we're trying to become. Are we becoming more inclusive 
Or are we becoming more restrictive? King calls us to shed the scales from our eyes and see the hidden wholeness, which he refers to as beloved community, that is set out within us and before us. And with this realization, we are able to hew out of the mountain of political despair the stone of hope. With this, we will be able to transform the discords of our nation into a symphony of brotherhood and sisterhood. Thank you. All right. Well, if everyone can stand up and uh, turn around and find a group of like four to six people, um, and you're going to have about five minutes, make sure everyone talks about what their initial thoughts are and any questions you want to have, and then we will uh, ask some questions, and I'll go from group to group. So you can go ahead and decide, oh, well, let's ask this first or something like that. And I'll bring you a mic, and you can use the mic when you ask a question. I know sometimes people see someone holding a mic and think, he doesn't want me to use it. We do, so everyone can hear it. So, uh, yeah, five minutes.
just filled up the graph that was that last of the things. Um, I put what it was left in there, and then during lunch I'll go over grab some more. Okay, I, I am waiting for the talk, the taco truck guy. Because we're going to do some Q and A stuff, I'll walk around. So if you want to um, just stand here, that way, and it won't feed back if you walk down. So feel free to be do whatever you want. All right. So uh, if you can uh, take a seat in the next thirty seconds and decide uh, who among you is so inspired to be the voice of the people from your collective. All right, so uh, I'll walk around this way. So, in this area, who uh, who feels so inspired to uh, any questions, comments, things? You know, you know, stay under a minute. How much do you think the disassociation of? Um, white evangelicals, for lack of a better term, who worked for justice in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, is tied to the individualistic American exceptionalism um, ideology that was fused with the um, binding of hippie culture and Christianity in places like Calvary Chapel, where the ideology is me and Jesus one-to-one, which allows the disconnection of the text and the disconnection of salvation happens communally here and now in the kingdom of heaven for all being engaged with. And that is one of the bifurcating problems of why you have um, white evangelicals who work for social justice, who were involved in, in sanctuary movement, somehow um, going through cognitive dissonance and voting in support of things that actually run counter to their ideologies. Wow. Okay. That, that was a mouthful. Okay. Um, I... Somebody read their assigned reading. <laughs> well, I could attempt to respond to that. Let me use, let me use King. At the same time King was around, people forget that Billy Graham was around too. Right? Billy Graham was actually doing revivals at the same time King was fighting for segregation. And most evangelicals um, you know, followed Graham while he was talking about his personal salvation and you know, give your hand to the preacher and then soul to the Lord. And they looked at King as crazy because they were like, why are you out there breaking the law when you're a Christian minister? You should be talking about salvation. So King's response, and people don't really talk about it enough, is that he gave a new definition of Christian salvation and talked about that you can't just talk about 
the soul of humans when they live in hellish conditions. Right? Part of the Lord's prayer is about on earth as it is in heaven, that the conditions on earth should reflect the conditions of heaven. Right? King was in that spirit of trying to transform the conditions on earth to make them reflective of the conditions in heaven. So King really um, critiqued and gave an alternative paradigm for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to understand that our personhood is not just a disembodied soul, but a soul that is inside a body. So it's the whole person, not just an aspect, a privileged aspect. Um, I don't remember how this question was phrased exactly, but when you brought up the hope that King had towards the, the end of his time, it had me thinking of what do you do or what have you noticed with the way in which people are, people use hope to keep exploitation in place. So with the current election, rule America, their hope was in maintaining and regaining a status quo and the, the harm that they have um, received. And so what, how do you hold those tensions when hopes um, don't seem to align? Yeah, so you, you said that the election, the hope was... Uh, Middle-class America and, like, rural America. So they're... Them voting for Trump or the reestablishment of America great again... The hope that as industrial America started to decline, the, the promises that they had as privileged Americans were taken away. And so hope for them looked like regaining off the, the exploitation of others. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really excellent question because hope is always tied to the imagination, right? Like there's always certain, there's a certain envisioning of what embodies hope, right? Um, and from a kind of Christian say, you know, there's a distinction between optimism and hope. Like optimism, if people are optimistic, they, they really believe that the evidence points toward a certain type of future, uh, preferred future. <laughs> but hope is like not looking, it's, it's not, um, <laughs> it's realizing the evidence might not point to that, but we could transform the evidence, <laughs> you know, in terms of that through our faith. So what King thought that history is malleable that it's changeable, that it's not, you're not fated in a certain direction, but that human beings can inject into the veins of civilization a new hope for humanity. And his idea of hope, at least from a Christian sociological vision, was always had to be connected to the biblical principle of not just loving your neighbor, but loving the least of your neighbors. Right? So it, it, it had to somehow embody a vision, uh, a kind of Matthew 25 vision, you know, that, had, that was connected to that. And that might look di differently in different kind of con um, certain contexts, but it was about solidarity with the poor. 
terms of that. Now, there are, you know, you can hope. I mean, Nazis had a hope, right? Oppressions have a hope, too. But if you're talking about it from a Christian perspective, there is a certain consistency to the biblical witness that is always pointed toward the vulnerable and disadvantaged. Hi, my name's Devin. Thank you so much for sharing today. Um, I mean, I thank you. That was very thoughtful and moving, and I believe. (laughs) Mm. And yet, I, I feel so demoralized after this election season and all that's happened that, you know, my, my question is more of like a reality-based one. How do we live? Like, how do you live? How do we do this now? Um, in a way that um, lives in community, that has hope um, in something bigger, but it, it feels still so crushing at the same time. That's an excellent question, and I felt the immediate shock (laughs) of the election had me a bit demoralized, too, Um, so I I resonate with that. What I think I've come to a point, though, is that we have to, um, to use a a sports metaphor, play small ball. Like, instead of always trying to hit a home run, get a base hit. (laughs) Like, get a base hit. Get on base. Like, do what you can. Just, just practice love and kindness in your context, right? Like, that one thing um, in your contact that made sense. The way you try to get out of a rut is you have to do the next right thing, right? The next right thing. You mess up, you do the next right thing. And we have to do the next right thing until there's a collective coming together and history opens for the opportunity. Because what happens is that um, there are certain you know, constellation of circumstances that create levers of opportunity for social change. But those are some things that are out of our control to make massive social change, like in the 60s. Uh, But we don't just sit idly by waiting for that. We still keep active in our daily kind of practice and our faith practices and our political practices and our cultural practices. So we need to keep... um, grounded and active um, in that. And then the invitation of history will open up at some point and we're able to capitalize on that. So to me, it's being present in the moment and not, be, not having anxiety about the future, right? That, that's kind of what faith is about, right? Like there's a, there's a theologian, uh, Paul Tillich, thought that anxiety was a modern sin, right? If you have faith, faith means trust, confidence. And to have anxiety, like, uh, human beings are the, one of the only, like, living creatures that can have anxiety because we're always projecting about the future. You're an animal that can't think about the future. You don't have anxiety because you're living right now. <laughs> so you're not worried about possible alternative futures. You're just living right now. And I think we might have to, like, take our cue from other living creatures and just live in the moment and not be so anxious about certain things. I mean, we have to have some type of projection, that type of thing, but we can't be so caught that we become paralyzed by that. So my point being is that we should really 
my, my, my sense of things is that we have to do what we can in our personal circumstances. And at some point, there'll be a critical mass that's able to change the levels of culture so we can make deeper forms of transformation. Desegregated. And of course, you know, that solves every, every issue of, of race and such. And, um, and so for me early on, uh, my mother tells the story that I didn't know that my kindergarten teacher was black. Um, but I knew my third grade teacher was. That just tells you how socialization works in, in that, that sort of spectrum. At five, it's, you, you know, you're just kind of becoming aware of the world. And by nine, they've told you that there's a difference. And so I've been very intrigued even before uh, today's presentation by Adam about the whole way colorblindness works. And maybe we'll get to get to tease that out a little bit more. Um, but my uh, second pastorate was in Texas. And um, I coached girls basketball for one year. Um, I don't recommend it. Um, and um, what it does. I just don't recommend coaching, period, but I, I don't recommend that. Anyway, um, the town was, was fairly uh, still racially divided. It, it was kind of cotton country in uh, just south of Dallas. And um, there was the other side of the tracks, and the majority of uh, black families lived on the other side of town. But the majority of girls on my basketball team were black. And um, I had gone to school in a multi-ethnic school, even though whites would have been considered the majority. It wasn't a, a full majority of the, of, of the school. I hit it off really well, and, and some of the girls wanted to come to church. And um, when uh, they did, uh, I got met in the foyer by one of the older men who wanted to know um, why those uh, damn, and he used the N-word, were not going to their own church. And a few weeks later was called together by some of the men to ask what I was going to do about them coming to our church. And so it was my first encounter with um, really kind of a, a really deep-seated sense that there was should be such a separation having spent the rest of my, from fourth grade on, believing that, that we all belong together. And um, and then it reared its head last fall uh, in the church I'm at now. Not in the church, but in the community. Um, there's a, a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma that our team played football. And um, it was one week after Terrence Crutcher. I don't know if it made it all the way out here, but Terrence Crutcher was killed by a policewoman. And... Uh, and so in, that night, um, we, we, went, we traveled there. I wasn't at the game, but we traveled uh, to play uh, there in Tulsa. And rather than play the national anthem, they played the black national anthem. And I have to tell you, I was completely ignorant um, of, mm -hmm. of that. And um, they got the uh, uh, approval from the, the superintendent of the schools, Tulsa uh, Public Schools, but nobody notified our fans. And when that happened, um, they all stood thinking that they were going to hear the national anthem. And 
like, have you ever like been asked to drink something and you think it's going to taste one way and it doesn't? <laughs> and the visceral response was pretty deep and uh-huh. pretty loud and pretty harsh. Hmm. And, um, and so some folks in our church, uh, one of our staff members, his son plays in the band and he was on the other side of the field and, and he could, he knew that some of our fans were just so appalled. And he sought out the principal at the school and, and uh, one of, one of our guys on staff at the time went and said, we want you to know not everybody feels that way. And so, it's really a little bit longer, more involved story, but it really surfaced some things that nobody really knew uh, really were kind of going on. And, or maybe as we, maybe they knew about it, but no, it's one of those things you didn't talk about. And so we started trying to find ways to talk about it. So we drove to Tulsa. In fact, Trip was in town. We, we drove to Tulsa and met with the, the coach and the principal and um, our planning for their visit to Tuttle. Um, next year and what we're going to do to make sure they feel welcome. And of course, I would say we play the Black National Anthem, but I'm pretty sure I get shot or shot down um, o- over that idea. But Lift um, every voice. Lift every voice. That's it. It's a great song. It's, I mean, I think it's a fantastic song. And um, I'm glad to now be aware of, 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 of that, you know, not, not, not live in my closet any, any longer. Um, so as a pastor, the kind of the, the, the tightrope to walk is, is how do you raise subjects? And that, that's what made um, Adam's and Kristen's kind of presentation so powerful is, is you, you really struggle to look for ways to raise those subjects because we white people are pretty fragile. And when you raise kind of those, some of those subjects, then immediately instead of someone thinking about the real question, we immediately move to our corners of our already well-defined responses. And uh, that becomes, you know, becomes stifling to anything that, that we would call progress. And, uh, and so maybe to get into talking to Adam, uh, when uh, Adam was here and uh, uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes uh, for the unfolding conference, uh, she said, uh, was asked uh, by a fellow sitting next to me, said, I need you to come to my church and tell my people. And she said, uh, uh, you need to tell your people. Mm. So that was pretty, uh, in you know, okay. So I took that for myself and said, okay. So I contacted Adam and said, okay, I got to start telling my people. So let's get on Skype and let's let's talk about this subject and and how we raise this. And so I think now I'm supposed to, to interview you. Oh, okay. Is that sure? Yeah, okay. Here we go. Did I make that segue okay, Trip? Okay. Just, <laughs> just, I, think, I think this version is called unscripted. <laughs> and um, so, so um, earlier, Adam, when I was in my group, um, the question I had was um, we could always use an event. So I could use this football event or I could use a shooting event. But... But but everybody's already preconditioned toward their responses. In other words, mm. those things have happened so frequently that we always chase right to what, what our norm is. And so I'm wondering if you have a suggestion. Um, the, the burning thing for me was, so how do you, how do you talk about it in, in a way that you can work to disarm those defenses, even though you want to subvert 
those existing, that existing animus, as you described it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say, um, you talk about at the level of analysis. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, we, we could do that. I'm thinking kind of practically. So I call you up and I say, Adam, I'm having trouble. Um, and I, how would you suggest I kind of raise that subject in a way where maybe I could have a better conversation than... Um, um, because the the depth of the existing relationships are such that you want them. You you finished with a line. Um, the most important thing was what kind of people, not who won the election. Right. What are we choosing to become? Yeah. So, so if a deep relationship means you are trying to foster um, a different kind of people that they could become, yeah. and you know these things are harbored, mm-hmm. how do you? How, what, what are some ways you might suggest to a pastor or a, a class that you'd have knowing they're going to go do that in a nonprofit or in a pastoral setting? How, how could we raise these subjects knowing that the immediate responses are normally to go to our corners? Yeah, that's a real good, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I would say to always keep in mind that Racism is a lie, right? And it doesn't really survive contact, Hmm. right? The more contact you have, the more of the fiction it shows itself. So I'd start from that, that premise that it's, it's, I don't want to talk it so much that it's so high you can't jump over it and so low you can't get underneath it, right? right. To, to make it, it the idol into something concrete and, um, you know, permanent in a certain sense. Um, so I always would like to keep that in mind. That it is a lie. That, that, and you could talk about the lie just scientifically, that race in and of itself is a social construct. I mean, there's no scientific reality behind race. Um, even what we refer to as blackness and whiteness shifts, depending on the context, right? Like, for, my, for example, for myself, I'm considered black in the United States, but maybe in South Africa I'd be colored. And maybe in Brazil I would be something else. And maybe in Dominican Republic I'd be something else. Right, so even the shifting context in which people phenotypically, meaning that how they appear, shifts. And the same thing with whites, as we said, how you know, there's books how the Irish became white, how mm-hmm. Jews became white. So it's not like there's something like actual to this. It's it's socially designated and socially assigned. So when you explain that this is all kind of a formation, that it's a, if human beings constructed it, then human beings can destruct it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So part of it is understanding that these are all like certain types of sociological constructs. That's one thing. And I, and I, and I say that because that could be a source of hope, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that this isn't something that is a natural given um, so, you know, and, and that makes it malleable and changeable. Um, so it gives you some wiggle room to, for that there's some type of agency in the way we actually approach the issue. Uh, so in terms of that, but 
I'm, I'm right now, and I, and I resonate with this question. I'm, I'm struggling with that question right now. I'm actually working with um, the archbishops in Cincinnati, and there's an archbishop in Louisville. And there are some people in the diocese who are very, very concerned about the, the racial climate, especially in light of the Trump election. Um, so they wanted to have a dialogue about racial justice, but they know if they say racial justice, they'll get the same usual suspects. Um, and it'll scare a lot of people away. And our diocese is becoming more and more conservative. And there's a lot of people who are liberal Catholics who just left, I mean, in terms of the officials in the diocese. So what they, they're calling the conference that's happening at Xavier University promoting peace, right? They don't, they don't want to say anything <laughs> about race because they want to expand the realm of stakeholders in these diversity discussions. So, you know, I was kind of in tension with that at first. I said, well, that's kind of hard because we're not, you know, you're, it seems like you're bringing someone in and you're not going to really talk about, um, it, it kind of finesses it in a way that I thought was like a little misleading. But then they, you know, I was convinced that the effectiveness of doing that, if you're going to kind of expand um, expand the realm of people of, who see themselves in, in, in invested in these type of issues. Uh, so I say all this to talk about the way of framing the issue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like peace can be a way of framing because um, racial division is disharmony, mm-hmm. right? So... You could talk about, you can use theological categories in ways that are able to get at the notion of race, um, but have people think of them, about them in more concrete and specific ways. For example, with King. King, in a letter from the Birmingham jail, um, said that Peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice. He says, you think you've had peace because there's been no conflict in Birmingham, but that's not peace because justice was not present. Right? So that's a way of trying to think about, you know, kind of repopulating classical theological issues in a way that gives you... Um, um, I guess, a uh, strategy to confront, you know, the presence of racism. Yeah. You know, you, you said uh, um, it, it kind of begins at the point of contact. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about this kind of contact. Yeah, it, does it, 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 it shifts. Like, sustained contact over long periods of time, racism, like people... People generally want to get along, mm-hmm. right? Even even during slavery, I mean, you had certain types of social intimacies, right? Now, the status were different because racism isn't just what human agents do. There's an institutional structural arrangements to that. But in terms of, you know, knowing that human beings are human beings in terms of that, yeah. like it 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 really does like a sustained contact racism is not a good barrier to um, stop people's humanity from showing to each other. Yeah. Just so long as, like, <clears throat> in some parts of the country, mm-hmm. um, we're distinguishing what you're describing from the the uh, old phrase when the issue of race comes up, well, some of my best friends are black. 
We're not talking about that kind of coded language. Right, We're talking right. about a different kind of contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, a lot of that way is a way to dismiss the institutionalized, mm-hmm. you know, and structural forms when people say that. And also that people make choices between their individual black friend and black people, right? right? You might like certain aspects about a black person, but still think black people, think of black people in pathological ways, mm-hmm. right? But there's exceptions. Just like I'm personally not a dog lover, <laughs> but there's certain individual dogs I like. <laughs> no, it's not every dog I ate, it's just I don't like the ones that bite me. I, I, I was a paper boy. I had traumatic experience when I was young, and I just like I just don't trust dogs, <laughs> right? But it's not like every dog I hate. It's just that I'm suspicious that I'm going to get bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, there could we could go all ways with that. <laughs> uh, well, so when when we talk about racism as a social construct, and we're we're talking about sustained contact. Um, we do have to be aware of our vocabulary mm-hmm. because if words help shape how we understand the world. Definitely. So you've, you've been doing some work. We talked about it before. You mentioned it today. Um, what's a simple way, not that you weren't simple, that, but, but in, in, a, in a pastoral sort of context where maybe the language might be a little bit, you might, you might have communicated a little bit differently today if, you, if that were, let's say, a different audience. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what are some steps you would take to help them understand how their language is coded? Yeah. You know, um, because I'm assuming people here already kind of maybe have at least some, some sort of um, uh, connection with that idea. But, but I, if I mentioned, you know, to my congregation, for instance, that, you know, we got to be aware of our color-coded vocabulary, yeah, that, that's an excellent question. I think Kristen did a really good job of talking about some of those. First, I'll, you can, first, we have to get people to understand that whiteness is a particularity, not a universal, mm-hmm. right? Like white, like most white people don't see themselves as white. They see themselves as American or Los Angeles or Cincinnatians or whatever. So to talk about whiteness as a marked category, as a form of particularity, you know, is important because most people don't think of it. For example, I, I had students um, in my class, they're trying to, we were, you know, um, three stories up and they're trying to explain something about a group, uh, uh, trying to identify one of their friends um, in a group. And, and I was like, well, which one? There's a group of kids. He said, I said, the one in the um, Knicks shirt? No. The one in the Bulls hat? No. Um, the black one, right? And the black one, the, and he was the only guy in the group that wasn't identified by his clothes or his items, he was identified by his color, mm-hmm. right? So blackness is a marked category. Mm-hmm. Now, whiteness is unmarked, and that's why there's a certain privilege to it, because no, people don't see it as marked or having any type of specific content to it. So just the marking of whiteness, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it kind of levels the field. 
where everybody's marked, that you're just, you're just having different markers and not penalizing people for, for that. So, and also that it's harder to resist something that's unmarked, right? Like if you don't mark it, it's hard to like actually resist it or having a way of framing your response to it. So that's one in terms of language. Now the other, what I really appreciate about uh, Chris's talk is the saying things like, well, you know, we're going to do ministry in the urban community or good neighborhoods versus bad neighborhoods or these type of things that become proxies for race and are kind of our racial, you know, racial codes. Um, some of that needs to be unpacked, right? And white people, when they say white folks like me, that's powerful for other white people when they identify themselves as a marked person. Just like I talk about my heterosexual privilege, right? Like when I'm talking to my, my you know, mixed class, I say, look, I have forms of privilege myself, right? Like blackness might be a structural disadvantage, but heterosexualism is my privilege. So when I say, when I talk about, like, I don't have to worry about holding hands with somebody I'm intimate with and being scowled at in terms of that, so when I go out there and I say, I mark that, that makes people who are in the LGBT community think, say, oh, okay, so he really gets that. Like, it's a particularity. It's not universal. And it doesn't, it shows a certain type of um, um, awareness that even sexuality is constructed. Yeah. You, you made a connection that... Um, <clears throat> made some things click about why, and I don't know if there's a good reason, but but why so many uh, that, uh, friends that I have that say decided to vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. And when you raise the issue of economics right. in relationship to race, because we don't think about the companion relationship. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Shifting gears, um, nobody wants to have their sense of economic security threatened. Right. So in a, among a group of people who feel that any sort of disruption in what they perceive to be the system or structure that would keep them secure, they don't think to the level of how those systems are disadvantaging other people. Mm-hmm. So what are some ways that you um, find helpful to get at those pieces where um, when someone says, well, I voted for this reason, and they really are economic, at least as they understand economics, you know? Um, Because, you know, it it really doesn't play well when they say, well, I voted for economics, and I go, well, you're racist. (laughs) You know, it doesn't doesn't really work. Right, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really, again, another, you know, challenging question because I'm not sure that people, Reinhold Niebuhr says, human beings are a mystery to themselves. Amen. I'm not sure if people even understand all the motivations that go into the way they are voting, what's driving them, right? There's something, they are... In the academic realm, we call their people, um, we call them the masters of suspicion, like Freud, Marx, Nietzsche. And they believe that 
we, that the Western world overstates reason. That we always talk about human beings are reasonable creatures, but we really have drives that really motivate us. Our, our, we have, you know, interest, you know, whether they be racial interests or economic interests. That there are other things that, like, are the, the animating force for what human beings do or will to power rather than, you know, kind of reason. And I say that is that I'm always I'm suspicious of the motives and with people when you have such a figure who was picked over things he did that would disqualify any other candidate, you know, white or otherwise, right? Why? So what's at work in that? Yeah, I don't think it's really good. I mean, I don't go around, you know, saying... I don't think it opens a dialogue to go around calling people racist, right? <laughs> but and I don't think that race was maybe the kind of self-conscious um, first, you know, rule. I, but I do think that it's a good way to say this. Okay, he, here's what I think about just American history. Um, after slavery, there was a period called Reconstruction, right? And Reconstruction was a way of saying that, look, we our country's been through a lot after the Civil War, and we need to kind of rebuild what happened, especially after you leave millions and millions of Africans from slavery in the South. We need to kind of build it up. Now, after you had Reconstruction, that's really the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, right? The Ku Klux Klan didn't exist during slavery. It came during the period of Reconstruction, um, and Jim Crow laws didn't exist during slavery. It came after the period of Reconstruction. So I think what happens is that once you have like a great leap forward, you have the voices of reaction that are trying to quell that. And I think a lot of these were reactionary voices, right? And that you had people join these reactions because it got momentum. They were never a cause. And I think people joined that momentum and they had that force because he's having 10,000 at this rally, 10,000. And he's speaking to a deep need. And I think the anxiety is there are a lot of people who are wedded to a certain vision of, of the country that they felt was falling apart. Like, because I don't know if people really think, oh, Trump is going to bring all these manufacturing jobs. Like, I don't really think that this was, I mean, he didn't really give a whole lot of political stuff. I think he gave a mood or a sensibility that people actually connected to rather than a policy platform because he didn't speak that much. And I think it's that vision of American greatness that comes from the 50s that appeals to a lot of white people. But as I just said with King, the 50s were not good times for black folk. No, no. <laughs> right? That vision of the country is something that's deeply mythological for, in terms of talking about a, a notion of um, a justice. Last question, then we'll give folks a chance to, to talk a little bit. Um, this is so my a hyperbole um, of talking about someone who voted for economic reasons and you you know, uh, shout him down as racist really probably fits better to say you are trying to protect the privilege you either think you have or want to have. Mm. Because if those, if race is a structured, uh, socialized piece, then really 
what you're out to protect is either a perceived privilege or desired privilege. Is that maybe yeah. deeper? That, and I think there's an investment in a certain narrative of what America is, yeah. right? And you see it going away, and it's not just right. It's, it's, I think it's a, it's a race is one, it's a, it's one factor. It may be even a dominant factor, but I think people think that their country is slipping away because the rate and pace of change is so quick, so fast. Things become obsolete so fast. Um, we're Not just we have a different paradigm of race that's changing, we have a different paradigm of gender and sexuality that's changing at such a quick pace. And people's minds have not been able to grasp the change. And they associate that, and when they see a racial difference, they associate all difference gets projected onto that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that people are like, I don't like that. <laughs> I like what I grew up with. I like the image that, and they harbor that, that narrative understanding, and Trump was able to speak to that. And he's also able to, you know, when you're talking to large populations, like we're over 300 million people, when you see problems, you have to have a person, it, it's, it's a classical scapegoat. You have to have the idea that you have to put the problems onto something in order to justify why the crisis here in the first place, right? So America's in crisis. Why did it happen? Well, it's the uh, Mexican immigration, or it's the ter- or it's the Muslim terrorists and that kind of thing. So I think a lot of it is scapegoating American problems because it's it's difficult for us to look at ourselves and how we participate in creating this problem, right? And also there's a reluctance to try to. G- g- to try to um, hold economic elites accountable for the collapse of the economy. Good. Well, I I could go on and just pretend nobody else is here. Hey, as always, I want to thank you for listening to Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. In the uh, blog post, uh, show notes as we call them, I'll have a link to an earlier conversation I have with Adam Clark. Uh, I have found him uh, very helpful in thinking through issues that I never thought of in terms uh, or relationship to uh, racism, colorblind racism, color-coded racism, and those sorts of things. And um, hopefully um, you'll uh, go back and listen to that one, and it will um, maybe also give you some other things to think about in terms of what's the uh, next right thing to do. Uh, One of the things I'd I'd like you to do, and you could help us uh, get found, is leave a, a rating and a review. In iTunes, uh, subscribe in your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, I use Overcast. And um, as always, give us uh, some feedback. Send us some suggestions. You have a topic, subject that you think would be important to uh, explore in terms of life, faith, and theological reflection. And uh, we'd certainly try to to find a guest that would fit that particular subject. Uh, We do have some shows upcoming that I think will be helpful. And so always uh, stay tuned. You can subscribe to the uh, a little newsletter that will alert you when new shows come out. And you can do that on the website at www.patheological.com or patheological.net or toddlittleton.net. Any of those addresses will get you there. And then as always, it, it, again, it, it's really helpful if you share the podcast. So until next time, this has been Todd Littleton. Peace.